Well, happy Independence Day, friends, and welcome to worship this morning. We're so glad you're here with us. Hope you had a great 4th of July. I had an amazing 4th of July. You know, we're doing this series, Summer Cookout, and I knew, you know, I, I had some good buzz and it was going well, but I had no idea the impact this series was making on our community. This Thursday, I was driving around town, and everywhere I went, I saw people having cookouts. They were having cookouts in backyards and in parks. At Freedom Hall, thousands of people gathered for a cookout. That's just amazing. I mean, I feel like we've, made, we've had some impactful sermon series, but nothing like this. It was just incredible. There may have been other things involved, too, but I'm pretty sure it was mostly the sermon series. No, I'm just teasing. hope you had a great uh, Fourth of July. Uh, I love the 4th of July. I love fireworks. I love cookouts. I love the whole thing. Uh, I, I love the country, and it's a fun chance to celebrate, you know, kind of do a little yay America stuff. I remember very clearly the first time I figured out that I actually loved our country. Like, not just, you know, you kind of grow up, you sort of take it for granted, but like, well, I'm a big fan. Um, I was on a school trip, uh, and we were going to, to visit like four cities in Europe, and the first one we went to was in London. And through this odd turn of events, we were all supposed to go see Cats. Like there's like eight kids on the group. We're supposed to see the, the musical Cats, but they all wanted to spend extra money and get really good seats, and I wanted to save all my money to buy food. So I was sitting by myself, way up in the nosebleed sections of Cats, and I happened to be sitting next to a girl from London who was just one year older than me. She was also there by herself, so she didn't really have anybody talked to. We both got there early, so we just kind of ended up talking the whole time. I remember very little about the conversation, except for this, I don't, and I have no idea how we got there, but at one point in the conversation, we ended up talking about how much she loved England and how much I loved America. We weren't arguing. It wasn't like a fight, like my country's better than your country, but we were just telling each other what we loved. She visited America, and she talked about how much she liked England better and why, and she talked about things like she liked how international. She was from London. She said, I love the whole world is here, right here in one city, and, I, and she's right. London is a pretty international place. It's kind of cool, and she talked about how she liked how small her country was, that you could kind of visit the whole thing in a couple of weeks if you were driving around kind of see a little bit of everything. And uh, she talked about how she liked how old and historic her country was. She said, I, you know, I visited your country and they took us to some historic places that were 200 years old. Like, why am I supposed to be impressed by that, you know? Like, that's a normal house in my country, you know? Uh, to be old, you got to be like a thousand years old. And, and then it was my turn. I got to tell her all the things I liked about my country. And I, of course, since I just finished my junior year, I had just taken U.S. history. So, like, my reasons for liking our country were all, like, super lame and nerdy. Like, I was like, separation of powers is awesome, and we have two bodies of Congress. One represents the states, and one represents the population. And I was like, all this, like, super nerdy. I remember I did this big speech about how much I liked amendments because it, like, allowed us to improve our system of government. It kind of assumed we weren't getting it right now, but we're always improving the government. I've since discovered that, like, basically every buddy has amendments like that's not like some unique thing about us but at the time I was like super big on the amendment process you know uh, anyways but what we talked and talked I eventually I got to I said I liked how big it is and how we've got uh, deserts and oceans and we've got beaches and cold places and hot places and everything in between I talked about Tennessee and the mountains and the rivers and the creeks and the green and that kind of, for me, that, that conversation kind of, something switched in my brain. I just realized, oh, I really like my country. Like, I, it's not like I disliked my country before. I just never kind of noticed that I liked my country. And, and since then, 
I mean, like a lot of you, uh, you know, I've done the thing that, you know, we, we do. You know, I've voted. I've marched. I've been proud of my country. I've been ashamed of my country. I've been pleased with my leaders. I've been disappointed by my leaders. And all along the way, I've found myself sort of asking this question, how does a Christian love their nation? It wasn't enough for me to figure out how to love this nation, how to love the U.S. of A. How does a German Christian love Germany, or a Kenyan Christian love Kenya, or a Chinese Christian love China? Has God's word taught us anything about this? Are there any boundaries or directions that kind of guide our love for country? And this question has kind of stayed with me all these years since. And I don't think that I have it all figured out, but I, but I have started to notice some themes that emerge in Scripture that do kind of point us in a direction. Probably the most consistent theme in Scripture is that God's people love their nation like we're guests in it because our true citizenship is in heaven. Uh, Paul writes to the church in Philippi, Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Now this teaching to the people in Philippi was a radical notion. Uh, Philippi was a Roman colony, which meant that the residents of Philippi were Roman citizens. And in that day, to be a Roman citizen was a big deal. In particular, it meant that if they were ever in trouble, the Roman legion would show up to rescue them. You see, they had citizenship in Rome, and they had a savior who would come if they were ever in trouble from the Roman army. But Paul says more important than that citizenship is your citizenship in heaven. And the true Savior you await comes from there. It's not that Paul wouldn't let them be proud of their Roman citizenship. Paul was proud of his Roman citizenship. And, and whenever his Roman citizenship was useful to advance the gospel, well, he would use it and he would claim it and he would do it. It's just that Paul wants to make sure that the citizens of Philippi recognize that their citizenship in heaven is both more important and more permanent than their citizenship with Rome, and more specifically, he wants them to know that the true Savior they await will not come in the form of a Roman legion, but will come in the form of a crucified Savior. And this is important advice, because throughout history, it has been easy for Christians to look to their nation before they look to their God for the saving and rescue that they need. And so Paul's advice here is not idle advice, but important advice for us. It means that our mutual citizenship in Christ connects people from all racial backgrounds and tribal backgrounds and national backgrounds into a unity, a citizenship in heaven that's actually bigger and more important than all the ways that we are divided by our earthly nations. Christians, understanding that we are citizens of heavens, we actually have a unique role to play in the peace of our planet. Because we can speak a voice to say there is a unity that we have as God's beloved people that is more significant than the differences we have as the various nations of the world. This is exactly the point that Paul makes when he writes to the Ephesian church. 
In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul's been talking about how we can be united back to God through God's grace. And then he talks about how because of our unity with God, God now unites us with one another. And the walls of hostility that divide nation and tribe and race and tongue are broken down in the unity we have in Christ. Ephesians 2.19, he says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. You were foreigners and strangers to one another, Paul says. I know about the racial tensions and the tribal tensions and the national tensions. Paul knows all about that. He says, but now you who were once foreigners and strangers to one another are now fellow citizens, along with all of God's people, members of the same house. Paul is teaching a theological truth here, that in Jesus Christ, I have more in common with a Chinese Christian than I do with my fellow Vols fan who doesn't profess Christ. Now, I'll just tell you, it doesn't feel like that to me, okay? My American brain can barely wrap my head around that thought. My natural way of thinking, I feel like I have so much more kinship with my fellow Americans than I do any Christian from another nation. But God says I want it to be just the opposite. I want the kinship you have in Christ to be your primary kinship, one that breaks down all the other natural divisions of our world. And this posture is always how God's people have been called to live. God's people have always been called to live as guests longing for a future home, as citizens of heaven whose earthly citizenship was always secondary. Look how the book of Hebrews describes Abraham. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. All of these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on the earth. People who say such things, they show that they are looking for a country of their own. They were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This posture of remembering that I'm a guest in this place waiting for a home that is being prepared for me, this was easier for me when I lived in Maryland. We spent 10 years in Maryland. I loved our house. I loved our yard. I loved the mountains. I loved the rivers. I loved the bay. I loved the big city. I loved the people. I loved my church. But I always knew I wasn't home. I always knew I was there for one purpose, to advance the gospel in Hartford County, Maryland, for as long as God kept me there, and then I'd go somewhere else. It never felt like my home, which is exactly the way God wanted me to feel. I have trouble with that here, though. I've loved East Tennessee for so long, so deeply. This place does feel like my home. 
I don't feel much like a guest here. I feel like I belong here, which means that I have to intentionally call to mind the truth of Scripture that my citizenship is in heaven. And here I'm a foreigner and stranger passing through as I wait for my true and permanent home. The second thing that I notice consistently in Scripture as God's word teaches us how to love our country is that we love our country not only as guests, we also love our country like prophets. Some of the great heroes of the Old Testament were the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Hosea. And God has always been using God's people to speak truth to the nations that God loved. Here's one of Amos's patriotic speeches. Amos chapter 2. This is what the Lord says. For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his decrees. They have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. So I will send fire on Judah and will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says for three sins of Israel, even for four, I will not relent. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. Father and son use the same girl and so profane my holy name. They lie down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. In the house of their God, they drink wine taken as fines. Amos loved his country. Amos was later considered to be a hero and a patriot. But more than that, Amos was a prophet sent by God to speak the truth about his country's sins. And he talks about courts that have been corrupted to favor the wealthy, oppressive policies designed to hurt the poor, sexual sin being celebrated by their culture, and the rejection of God's wisdom by the leadership. And churches throughout history have frequently been called upon to love their various nations in just this way. It was early Christians that spoke out against the infanticide that was common throughout the Roman Empire. It was early Christians who prophetically began the abolitionist movement throughout Europe and the Americas that would eventually lead to the end of slavery. It was the confessing church in Germany that at risk of their lives spoke against the growing influence of Nazism even while so many Christians lost their prophetic voice because they put their earthly citizenship as Germans ahead of their heavenly citizenship as followers of Christ. And this could happen to us if we forget to love our country like prophets. This is one of the reasons why I love that our big national celebration is the 4th of July. Do you remember what we're remembering by the 4th of July? It's not a great military victory. It's not the signing of some treaty. It's not the beginning of our government. It's the day they finished the final draft of the Declaration of Independence. It's not even the day they signed it or the day they ratified it. It's the day they finished writing it. That's what we're remembering on July 4th. Which means what we're remembering is an idea 
An idea that had not yet come true. And I love that about our, in fact, I think it's on the list of things I love about our country is that what, what we remember is an idea that motivates us to, to keep getting better. And, I, and we all know we haven't even quite finished the idea. We're not all the way there yet. We don't yet fully live out the very ideas of the document that got us started, which means we recognize as a nation that the prophetic voice that criticizes a nation to help it live up to its ideals is actually a patriotic voice. And God's word teaches this same thing, that criticism of a nation for the sake of justice and mercy and love is actually a way you can love a country. I think this is why my favorite patriotic poem for years and years has been the poem, I Too, by Langston Hughes. It's super short. It says this, I too sing, America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow, I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody will dare say to me, eat in the kitchen then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I, too, am America. It's a hard poem. It's a prophetic poem that speaks about the truth of the great evil of racism and slavery that is all throughout our history. But like all great prophetic voices, it's also a poem of hope. Do you hear that? He says, tomorrow I will eat at the table and no one will dare tell me to leave. They'll see that I am beautiful and they'll be ashamed and turn away from their sin of racism. And this is what the prophetic voice always brings, a word of truth and a word of hope. And God's people are always being called upon to love the nations of the world in this way. By speaking truth and hope of God's justice and God's mercy and God's righteousness for all people. One more way that God's word teaches us to love our country. It's my favorite one since I discovered it. It motivates me. It gets me excited. It's also the one that's a little bit about food, which is how we snuck it into this series. It's from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah says that if you really want to love your country, you need to love it like a gardener. You see, the situation was God's people had been carried off to exile into Babylon. Their cities destroyed, their leaders killed, and they were trapped. Some false prophets arose that said, don't worry, in just a little bit, God will rescue us and we'll all get to go home to Jerusalem. That wasn't true. That was not God's plan. And so Jeremiah wrote a letter. Jeremiah 29, verse 4, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. To all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and settle down. 
plant gardens and eat what they produce, marry and have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. Not those lying false prophets, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Now let's be real, folks. It would have been hard to love Babylon. For the people of Israel who had watched their homes and cities be destroyed, their leaders killed, their temple desecrated, to be dragged across the desert and forced to live in a land that was not their own, it would have been hard to love the very nation that had enslaved their people. But God says, seek the peace and prosperity of this place. Make a home for your families here. Have kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. And then maybe when your great-grandkids are middle-aged, we'll move back to Jerusalem. And he opens it with this line that I just think is so beautiful. Plant gardens. You know you're going to be somewhere for a little while if you plant a garden, right? You don't plant a garden for next week's food. In fact, you don't even start a garden just for that year's food. The work of starting a garden is a work of investment for generations. And that is how God wants us to love the nations of the world today. Whether your nation is the USA, or you're listening online in Germany, or you're visiting from Mexico, or Canada, or China, or Kenya, this is how we love our nations, like gardeners. Gardeners take the long view. They tend the soil, remove the rocks, and enrich the ground. They plant crops, pull up the weeds, pray for rain, and wait for the harvest. And this is how God invites us to love our country. Even Remember, this is even when you don't like your country. And some of you might not be big fans of your country right now, whatever the country might be. But even if you don't like it, they didn't like Babylon. And God still says, love your country in this way. Seek the peace and prosperity of the place in which I have put you. Plant gardens. Eat what they produce. Don't take your nation for granted. Recognize that God wants you to leave the place he put you in 
better than you found it. I love how many people in this church are devoted to public service, whether it's in politics or as first responders or school teachers or social. I mean, just, we just list there's so many people that are out there making our world better, that are out there planting gardens that may not bear fruit, may not have produce on them for years to come, but they're taking the long view to, to love the country they've been put in in tangible ways. I love that t-shirt we have for everyone. And we are. We're for everyone because God is for everyone. We're for every tongue and tribe and nation under the sun. God loves them all equally and so do we. But we also recognize that we are in a place that God has called us to uniquely love. This is where God has called us to plant our garden. This is where God has called us to seek the prosperity of the city to which we've been called. This is one of the reasons, August 17th, I'm so pumped about this. We got a whole bunch of churches that are getting together for a huge service today right here in Johnson City. Um, We got to sign up early for this because it's so logistically complicated, but I really hope some of you will just decide that's what I'm going to do on August 17th. I'm going to be part of this. I would love for a third of our church to decide to commit to this service day. That'd be unheard of. We've never had that many people commit to a service day all at once. So like look to your left and your right. If they're not going, that means you have to go. That's the way it works, okay? Get three people in a row. Just decide now which one of you is going to be there on August 17th. We want an army of people. Why, why do we do this? Because God has called us to love the place where he's put us, to show up and plant a garden. In fact, some of them, you'll be quite literally planting gardens. Most of them you'll be metaphorically uh, planting gardens. But this is, this is what God wants God's people to do. Not because our earthly citizenship comes first for us, but actually precisely because our heavenly citizenship comes first. We're obedient when our King Jesus Christ tells us to love the place he put us. Now there are other Bible verses we could have talked about. Uh, We could have looked at Romans 13, which tells us all we're supposed to pay our taxes. So aren't you glad I didn't pick pick Romans 13 to preach from today, okay? Um, So we're going to focus on planting gardens, not paying taxes. But this is probably enough for today. When we're looking for guidance for how to love our country, we love our country like guests who remember that this is not our home. We are strangers here. We are truly citizens of heaven. We love our country like prophets who, when needed, speak the truth of God's righteousness and God's justice and God's mercy in a world that sometimes doesn't want to hear it. And we love our country like gardeners, leaving the place we're in just a little better than we found it, trusting that God will one day carry us home, but until he does, we're going to bless the nation where he's put us. Listen, I I know this sometimes goes wrong, right? We can look at the history of our world. We know sometimes people, they have loved their own nation more than other nations. And that's led to war and evil and all kinds of things. But it doesn't have to be that way. I'm convinced that we can love all nations and the one God put us in. I'm convinced that we can learn to love our country with a love that flows out of our first allegiance to God. In fact, I'm convinced that when we know that our true home is to come is when we can spend every minute we have in our temporary home here seeking the peace and prosperity of the city where God put us and planting gardens 
for others to eat the fruit. Let's pray together. God, we pray your blessing on this nation. And we pray your blessing on all nations. We pray for our leaders, God. Would you give them a spirit of peace and unity and wisdom? Would you help them see beyond party and power to see the people that you've called them to serve? And we pray for the people of our nation, for citizens and immigrants and refugees, that you would help us see a way to live in love for one another. We pray for the founding vision of this nation, a promise not yet fulfilled. May we be a part of seeing it come to pass, that we would truly have love and justice and mercy for all people because all people by you, God, are created equal. We pray, God, for your church that we would not be confused by our first allegiance, that it would always be you and that as citizens of your kingdom, we would learn how to love the countries where you have put us planting gardens and seeking peace until we are called home. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.